0: this is david meerman scott i'm co-author of the book fanocracy turning fans into customers and customers into fans and you are listening to the marketing book podcast welcome to the marketing book podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
1: Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers to help them grow. If that sounds like your company and you're serious about growth, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. Now, the number one worry I hear from listeners is that they feel they aren't reading enough books to be more successful. So, special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist, which is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at blinkist.com marketingbookpodcast Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome David Merriman Scott back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with his daughter, Rako Scott, Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans, published by Portfolio Penguin. David Mirren Scott is an internationally acclaimed business strategist, entrepreneur, advisor to emerging companies, and public speaker. He is the author of 10 previous books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR, now in its sixth edition and in 29 languages, and Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. In his spare time, he surfs And travels around the world to hear great live music. And speaking of that, interesting fact he attended 75. Grateful Dead Concerts. David, congratulations on Phenocracy, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you, Douglas. It's so great to be back. I love coming on here because you're so enthusiastic about we marketing book authors, so I appreciate that, and I know my colleagues do as well who also write books.
1: Oh, terrific. That's great. Yes, I'm like the sports reporter that can't believe he got a job at ESPN getting to interview... All the, all the athletes.
0: That's awesome.
1: And I should say that for the new listener, each episode, there's always a new listener. And I should explain that amongst m- the many more accolades, mo- many of which I didn't mention about David Mirman Scott, is that he is the patron saint of the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> I should explain why, and I mean this in all sincerity. In In my career... There are two books that had the biggest impact on it, and I think it has to do with that notion of when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So the first one was in the 1980s. I got out of the Army, came back to the United States, and went to get an MBA and didn't know what I wanted to do, so I was a little uneasy and I didn't quite... know what to do. And so I started reading all these different books, and I got a hold of David Ogilvy's Ogilvy on Advertising, Mm, and that just clarified everything for me. And I said, that's it. That's what I want to do. I love it. And so the next thing I knew, I was a Madison Avenue ad man. I was there for, for many years, and I worked in advertising. And even when I started my own firm, it was very much, you know, paid media, maybe occasionally uh, some PR, or as David Merriman Scott would say, uh, buying attention or begging for attention. And then I started to notice all of that was kind of crumbling. <laughs> <laughs> it, was all, <laughs> yeah, it was all kind of going away, sort of like travel agents 25 years ago saying, well, what do you mean the airlines aren't going to pay us a commission? What do you mean the people don't need us? And so, I start again, I was worried, and I didn't know what the next step was, too young to retire and all that sort of thing. I got a hold of David Merriman Scott's first edition of the new rules of marketing and PR. And it's like the clouds parted. And it was sort (laughs) of like I I saw, that's where it's going. I I do get a second act. I get a second bite at the apple. And I read that. And then I I got to meet David. Sorry to talk about you like you're not here. But I got to meet David at a conference. And even though I had read his book on an electronic version, I bought a copy of his book, put it in the suitcase, flew to Boston, and got to meet him at inbound... 2012, and I got him to autograph it, and uh, that was it was very exciting. So then I, uh, but after that, I said, you know what? I never want to feel like I'm growing dinosaur scales. I I've got to keep up with this. So I started just, I just didn't stop reading the books, and then I decided I want to start the podcast. And David Merriman Scott was the very first. Guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, very supportive, and I told you I made a little video and I sent you this. uh, I said I'm starting this podcast, and you said I am in. Let's do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, and I remember both of those things really clearly. I remember when we first met, and you you asked me to sign your book. I remember that it was in one of the reception areas at the event, and I remember there was there was food going around or something was happening and um, and then I remember when you said that you wanted to do the podcast like all over it because that's a podcast that's needed and I, I already knew you and I knew you'd do a good job with it um, and and you know for me as an author to have someone actually implement the ideas is so cool because most people read books and you know like you said they the, the timing may not be right for them or um, they read 25 books and only one or two of them really speak to speak to them in such a way that they want to execute on the ideas. But you were all in on the new rules of marketing and PR, my friend, and that just makes me feel so good that the ideas that I talk about are actually valuable to people. And I get emails every single day, or, or LinkedIn connections, or tweets, or whatever, and people say that they've implemented the ideas and it helped grow their business. And there's for me as an author and a teacher and somebody who's out there um, pushing these ideas is out there. Um, I love that. I love the fact that what I do for a living helps people. So I appreciate you saying so. Well,
1: it certainly does, and I'm still all in. And I just have to add one other really kind thing you said to me, and I don't know if you remember this, but after we did the interview, which was uh, in 2015, I guess. I can't (laughs)
0: believe it's been that long. (laughs) This is episode 261. it It seems to me, for whatever reason, like Um, like your podcast started a year ago. It's like four years ago. It's crazy.
1: Actually, yours was the first, and it was January of 2015. So it'll be five years when this episode publishes. But after the interview, you said, hey, Douglas, that was a a great interview. How many of these have you done? (laughs) And I was so embarrassed (laughs) because I said, David, this was the first one. This is it. And Mm -hmm. you said... Well, you did a great job, and this is, you know, hang in there. So I think every time I start an interview with an author, I remember, I remember what you said there. So it nice. really made a, a nice. big, big difference.
0: So well, hey, you know, considering how many listeners you have, you've obviously done something right, and you can't continue along unless you're doing it right um, all along. So good for you.
1: Well, thanks. I love doing it though. That's the secret. <laughs> I love reading these books. So. I want to start with uh, just a quote from the foreword, which is written by your friend Tony Robbins. The core strategy behind any remarkable organization, one that dwarfs the competition and creates massive customer loyalty, is to provide so much value that customers can't help but share their enthusiasm and excitement. This is what I call creating raving fan customers and is one of the seven forces that I teach at my business mastery seminars around the world. Those whom David and Rayco term fandom customers are loyal. They know who you really are. They stick around even when you move in new directions because you've added value to them in a way that nobody else can. Customers who are merely satisfied can leave you. You and everyone on your team must be obsessed with doing whatever it takes to create a fanocracy in your organization. You need to create a culture in which your entire reason for being is to make sure that your clients are continuously blown away. And then I just want to quote, David, one other part. At the beginning, it says, in the chapters that follow, we take deep dives into major elements of developing fans, including the importance of proximity to customers, letting go of your work, giving gifts without any expectation of something in return, harnessing the power of transparency in business and other concepts. Through interviews, examples of success, and a set of strategies, we looked at how entities of all kinds, Including companies large and small, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, restaurants, artists, musicians, teachers, healthcare professionals, and insurance agents can tap into fan cultures and connect deeply with followers. Let's step back for just a minute, David. And you and your daughter have very different interests and uh, background. Share with us about uh, Rayco and, and how you two decided to write this book together.
0: Sure, of course. Um, and and by the way, thank you to Tony Robbins for writing the foreword to the book. I, I'm honored. I, I speak at his business mastery events, and um, when he agreed to do the foreword, it was really just um, fabulous. And. Um, so cool that he was able to do that. This book started because about five years ago, I was thinking to myself, "What in the world did I create with this new rules of marketing and PR thing?" So the new rules of marketing and PR now, twenty-nine languages, as you mentioned, Douglas says, but it's four hundred thousand copies sold in English over six editions. Um, arguably, the most popular book about digital marketing on the planet, and. At the five years ago, I was thinking digital marketing has taken a dark turn. Uh, so many companies are just spamming people with more and more and more emails. Um, they're cheating people online with with coupons and all sorts of things. There's polarization in our political world. Um, you know, the rise of AI and robots. In, you don't even know if you're communicating to some, uh, someone on social media, if they're a real person or not. And so I was kind of you know, a little bit sort of worried that this thing that I helped to create has sort of gone into a dark, dark place. But at the same time, I was talking with Reiko, uh, and she was 21 years old at the time. She's 26 now as the book is coming out. And, and I said to Reiko, you know, what is it with the fact that I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts? I mean, I'm deep into Grateful (laughs) Dead fandom. And she's like, yeah, I and mean, when she knew that, but she's like, yeah, I know. And I'm so deep into Harry Potter. She said, I've read every book multiple times. I've gone, I've seen every movie multiple times. I've gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park in Orlando. I've gone to London to the studio, and I just finished a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix. I put it on a fan fiction site. It's been downloaded thousands of times and commented on hundreds of times. I am dug in deep. T- Harry Potter. And so we and we were driving in a car and I remember this distinctly and and so we immediately agreed that we both had the same ideas about fandom. And you know, obviously she's my daughter, so you we know, were different generations. We're, um, we're different genders. Um, she's mixed race, and she's a scientist. Um, she uh, graduated a neuroscience degree from Columbia University, and she's currently in her final year of medical school. She's going to be doing her residency in in um, emergency room medicine next year, and, and, and so. On one hand, we had the exact same idea about how passionate we are about the things we love, like the Grateful Dead and Harry Potter. But uh, the other hand, she's a mixed-race millennial woman scientist, and here I am, you know, a a middle-aged white guy who loves the Grateful Dead. So we… We, I, I said to her, "Would you please collaborate with me on this book? Because she's actually a better writer than me, as well." And I didn't want it, to say that, but yeah, you, you can say that because, as you know, the way we wrote the book was that she has her chapters and I have my chapters. <laughs> yes. But, um, did you th- and it's please say so? Did you think she was a better writer?
1: <laughs> well, is this the end of the interview? I was just going to say, look, uh, you're I'm a too. fantastic writer, and the way that you—I mean, your keynotes, obviously, you're. explain things so well but your writing is great but then when I read her writing I just thought wow just when I thought David Merriman Scott couldn't take (laughs) it up a notch
0: so, I know, right? I know, I know. Well, I, you when, should be and,
1: very, very proud.
0: When she when she first sent me some of her stuff, I was like, "I'm in tears." Like, wow, this woman is just. She's not my little kid anymore. I mean, what a fabulous writer! She's yes. lyrical and interesting, and so anyway, we decided to collaborate on the book, and then when we first started writing, we thought that we would come at it from one voice. You know, it would be a book co-authored by us that was kind of melded our voices together. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she started to submit stuff to me, I'm like, no, her voice needs to be needs to be heard as a standalone. And that's when we decided to write individual chapters. So our, our working process is that we researched separately, um, although sometimes we were together, but for the most part, we researched separately, we interviewed people separately we wrote chapters separately then we edited each other and it worked great because her voice comes out my voice comes out yet um, we kept it as one continuous narrative that works together as a whole
1: yeah and I was it was helpful to be able to see who was who was writing so that I could appreciate what they were saying and
0: I damn did we fight about that oh really (laughs) oh yeah like behind the scenes behind the scenes between me and and Reka, we had a pretty strong idea that we wanted individual chapters with our names on them, and our agent wasn't so sure and wasn't prepared to take a strong stand on it. Our agent's name is Margaret McBride; she's awesome. Uh, and then when we when we sold the book to Portfolio, Penguin Random House, um, they also weren't sure, and they were pushing us in different directions of maybe making it one unified voice, and then maybe making it that we could write our own chapters, but that we wouldn't necessarily put our name against them. And I'm like, everyone's going to know. I mean, all the (laughs) well-written chapters are Reiko and (laughs) all the ones that are like, you know, detailed are mine. But, but um, in the end, it it ended up that everyone now, now that the book is done, everyone absolutely agrees we did the right thing.
1: You did. I'm glad you uh, prevailed on that. So, I want to ask you to go back one more time and tell the story about how right after you wrote the first edition of the New Rules of Marketing PR, you were invited to meet the 10 employees of an early-stage marketing <laughs> software startup in their office in, in Boston. And what happened when one of them commented on some stickers that yeah. they noticed on your laptop?
0: A now famous story in David Meerman, Scotland, So um, <laughs> as well as Brian Halliganland. So New Rules of Marketing and PR had come out in June of 2007. And just two months later, I got an email uh, from somebody at HubSpot. And the e- the subject line of the email and was... And you'd never heard of them, right? No, never heard of them. Subject line of the email was, we have based our company on the ideas of your book. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> This is an email I will open. <laughs> um, and they admitted later on that that wasn't true, but they knew I would open the email, um, which I did. And they said, hey, you know, we have this company. We're doing marketing software, and uh, we think alike. We look at this marketing the same way you look at marketing. And we're in Cambridge. You're nearby um, in the Boston area. And um, would you come in? We'll have a chat. And I said, well, that sounds great. So I drove myself it's only 10 miles away, which is so easy. And I walked in and I had my backpack, pulled out my MacBook Pro, which I have a bunch of stickers on my computer. And many of us, um, you know, are celebrate what we're a fan of by wearing a T-shirt or a hat with a logo on it. And many of us um, have um, stickers on our computers. And I, op- I opened, I, I, so I said hello to three people from HubSpot. Brian Halligan, the CEO, Darmesh Shah, the CTO, and then their current vice president of marketing at the time, and I, I pulled out my computer. Now, this is the first minute that I have known these people. I had not known them for more than one minute, literally, and I pulled out my computer, and Brian says, the CEO says, hang on, hang on. We can't go any further and tell me, until you tell me about those stickers on your computer. What about this one? And he pointed. And it was a sticker um, for, of Japan. And I said, oh, I lived in Japan for seven years and my wife is Japanese. It's a really important place for me. And he goes, I lived in Japan too. And it turns out that we actually overlapped. Briefly, and then he said, um, "What about this Nantucket Island sticker?" And I said, "Oh my gosh, I have a house in Nantucket. I love it. Go there all every, all, every summer." He goes, "I go there every summer too. What about this Grateful Dead sticker on your computer?" And I said, "Grateful Dead's my favorite band. I've been to seven. At that time, it was like 50 concerts." And he goes, "I've been to over a hundred Grateful Dead concerts." So <laughs> Brian says, "It's like we're long lost brothers. You're like into the Grateful Dead. You go to Nantucket. You lived in Japan." And we both figured out this new marketing thing at exactly the same time. You wrote a book, we started a company. Would you like to join my advisory board? <laughs> and he didn't have um, one yet, right? And he didn't have and he didn't have one yet. And so um, so I mean, it took a couple of weeks to sort it all out, but um, I ended up being the first member of the HubSpot Advisory Board. That was back in 2007. I'm still a member of the HubSpot Advisory Board. Brian and I, since then, have become really close friends. I've been to a hundred Grateful Dead. I've been to a hundred other concerts with him, probably 25 of them Grateful Dead concerts, I actually flew to Japan to present at the opening um, meeting of the HubSpot um, Japan office, and he's been to my place on Nantucket a couple of times. So it's really interesting to me how the idea of what you're passionate about, and in my case, with Brian, it was you know this Grateful Dead and a few other things, that instantly created a bond. The, the idea that we shared this passion for the Grateful Dead and and for for Nantucket and for Japan made something that we shared together come alive. And I've noticed that that's true of so many people. It's like, oh, my God, we love the same sports team. Or, you know, it's something even simple, like we drive the same car. We, you know, we're, we're both fans of something. And so many people are reluctant to share what they're passionate about you know oh i'm a professional i can't show that i love this particular band or whatever it might be but 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 people love other people who are passionate and we all love to interact with people who are like us like-minded people and people who share the same fandoms as we do are like-minded people
1: We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist might be the answer to one of your biggest worries. As I mentioned earlier, the number one worry I hear from listeners is that they feel they aren't reading enough books to keep up and be more successful. But there's only so much time, and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 3,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to and just. 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are from top-notch authors, many of whom have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, including Seth Godin, Guy Kawasaki, Robert Cialdini, Philip Kotler, David Merriman Scott, Anne Hanley, Bob Berg, John Jantz, Jonah Berger, Jill Conrath, Jeb Blunt, and many, many more. Over 40 authors who have been on the show blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by forbes the new york times and buzzfeed amongst others and it's used by over 10 million people right now blinkist has a special offer for marketing book podcast listeners go to blinkist.com marketing book podcast right now today to start your free trial or get 20 percent off your yearly plan when you join that's blinkist spelled b-l-i-n-k-i-s-t Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. And there's no risk because there's a free seven-day trial. Go to Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast, and that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the Marketing Book Podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at marketingbookpodcast.com. It's a very smart investment in your success. and now. Back to the show. So when you write that the myth of unyielding professionalism can obscure our genuine connections,
0: is that what you're talking about? I am talking about just that idea. Uh, You know, I I think about LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn is great, professional network and all that. um, But so many people are only business on LinkedIn. I mean, it's business, 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 business. business. You know, you look at their profile, it's all all one thing. It's all about their career path. Um, And I think that, you know, contrast that with Instagram, where people frequently share their passions. It's a different kind of network. And so I think that I really do believe and this is based on research we talk, we talk with thousands of people about what they're a fan of. We talk with hundreds of companies about how they've developed fans that it's way better to showcase what you're a fan of and bring your personal life into your professional life than it is just to be a on an automatron business person
1: mm-hmm. yeah, you talk about how too many people limit their own enjoyment. <laughs> Of the things they love.
0: Yeah, they do. <laughs> I mean, we see it all the time. We do. You know, it's like, um, gosh, I love, you know, whatever it is. Pick pick something. The New York Mets. <laughs> I love the New York Mets. And, you know, I can't wait to go to the game after work. But I'm not going to tell any of my colleagues. <laughs> sure you should. Hey, I'm going to the Mets. I'm so excited. You know, put on your ball cap. You know, like, how cool is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get on the subway train and go see the Mets people love that even if they're a Yankees fan <laughs> you know people love that you're passionate about something and you know passion is infectious
1: yeah mm-hmm. it's it's funny how i guess i can i can reveal something i feel like i should say i sent you a i went Deer hunting recently. And I was reading, did, your,
0: yeah. <laughs> reading your book while I was up in the tree. Which is an incredible <laughs> combination of, of, of things. Reading about <laughs> fanocracy at the same time you're deer hunting. <laughs> right.
1: And I almost didn't send it to you because I thought, oh, I don't know, maybe he some people are they're, they're uncomfortable with certain passions that yeah. that people have and just so everyone knows uh, it was a mistake to bring David's book up in the tree stand because the deer are fine I, I couldn't I kept reading the book every couple of pages I would look up to see okay yeah there's, there's no deer going through there's the forest no okay yeah so no. anyway but anyway mean,
0: meanwhile a deer like a, a big like I'm not a deer person but a 15 point no they had to be even number 16 point buck like walks walks but beneath you and stares up and sticks out its tongue and didn't you didn't even see it.
1: Right. And the deer was probably thinking, you're not worthy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you could you could have had me and I I could stick out my tongue. Yeah.
1: And then he and said, Thank you, David Merman Scott. So see, you're picking up fans you don't even know about, David. But it, <laughs> let's explain a little bit more about what a fanocracy is, because I think people might think, Oh, we got happy customers, we got loyal customers. Big difference.
0: Big difference, big difference. So, you know, we use the word fanocracy. It's a you know, it's a made-up word. Ocracy. There's a lot of ocracies out there. For for example, democracy is is the rule of the people. Fanocracy is the rule of fans. So the idea here is that a fanocracy is fans that come together, and we found that. All kinds of different organizations can create a fanocracy. Um, It's sort of the idea that it's an organization um, that inspires extreme passion for a product or a brand or an idea. And it's by putting customers' needs and wishes at the center of everything it does. So putting the customer first. And you know that's like a trope, you know, people say oh yeah yeah we always put customers first. But in, in fact m- most don't. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you know what does putting customers needs and wishes in front of everything else mean is kind of what we dug in with with this idea of fanocracy. And um, a- and we came at it partly backwards by understanding how fans React to the things that they're fans of, and we learned that it—you know—it's not just for athletes and artists and sports stars or actors. It's—it's it's for anybody. Um, we we mentioned HubSpot earlier, and I know you've been to Inbound multiple times, as have I. There's twenty five thousand fans of HubSpot who go to that conference people wear hubspot t-shirts and put hubspot stickers on their computer and and are they, they may not even be customers of hubspot but they're fans of hubspot and so that's true of of so many different organizations and what we found is that a fan is somebody who is extremely passionate about something they are eager to do that passionate thing again and again and again. They are happy to spend time and or money doing it. And probably one of the most important is some of their best friends share that passion with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, so for you with deer hunting, perhaps I might just guess that some of your best friends are also deer hunters that you share that with. And in the in my case, in the case of live music, you know, some of my best friends, including Brian Halligan, share that passion with me. And it turns out that. Creating a fanocracy is about putting people together to share what they're passionate about, just like HubSpot does. And those are people who are incredibly passionate about marketing and about sales and about um, coming together to celebrate interesting ways to serve customers better. And then they become friends and then they become passionate about HubSpot by doing so. So what then are
1: this is my what's the meaning of life uh, mm-hmm. question <laughs> what can companies and organizations do to learn more about their customers and get insights like that you know and and, 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 and that inspire this this uh, loyalty this this uh, fanocracy
0: So there's a number of different prescriptions that we came up with by talking with lots and lots and lots of companies who have managed um, to do this. And what it really comes down to is being as personal as you can. You know, the idea that when you can do business in a personal way, it becomes much more likely that you're going to create fans. And so one of the stories in the book that's actually one of my favorites is that um, we talked with McKeel Haggerty from Haggerty Insurance. Now, in the last sort of six months, I've delivered some speeches about the idea of fanocracy, and I open my speech with this. I say, who loves auto insurance? And the room is crickets, man. It's like dead silent (laughs) because everyone hates auto insurance. It's no fun. And the first thing out of his mouth when I interviewed McKeel Haggerty, who's the CEO of an insurance company – he said, My business sucks. Everyone hates it. Nobody <laughs> likes to buy insurance. It's terrible. And I and I was laughing at him. And I'm like, he goes, David, I couldn't sell insurance like everybody else does. I couldn't talk about how wonderful our product is. Everyone hates our product. So I had to do something completely different. What I had to do was build fans. And so he said, We set out. To figure out how we can build fans, and we're pretty good at it, he said. And the punchline of the story is that they're the fastest-growing um, auto insurance company in in the U.S. Um, they they will have uh, grown by 200,000 customers this year. Um, they have 600,000 members. Of their auto club, these are people who pay to be a member of an auto club. They pay to be a member of a club of an insurance company.
1: <laughs> well, now <laughs> he have... he insures uh, like
0: vintage cars. It's classic cars. Yeah, mm-hmm. vintage cars and classic cars. They also do boats and motorcycles and airplanes, but their primary business is cars. Uh, all classic, classic cars, classic boats, classic airplanes, and and um, and they have nine hundred thousand subscribers of their YouTube channel. An insurance company with 900,000 subscribers of their YouTube channel. So he said that um, they go to over 100 classic car events a year. And this is where people who love classic cars go. So of course, the human connection comes there. They they teach courses on car valuation. They teach courses on investing in classic cars um, at those physical events. They have the, the content that they create around valuations and they have a magazine, and they they just do some really cool stuff. One thing I really thought was clever is... They have a, a bunch of cars available at the classic car shows where they will teach your teenage kid how to drive a stick shift, which is oh, cool. Cool because I never taught Rako how to drive stick shift <laughs> because she didn't want to, and I didn't really want to, and it just felt weird to like teach your kid how to drive shift, and so mm-hmm. she never learned. And she, and it turns out Haggerty Insurance found out that that's true of most people, and so most. Um, Young people, most millennials, do not know how to drive a stick. Yet at the same time, many of those classic car owners' cars are stick shift. So there's a disconnect there. So they say, well, we'll teach your kid how to drive stick. And then when that happens, those owners and those young people are absolutely – fans of Haggerty who did that teaching for them. So they just figured out all these really clever ways of building fans. The bottom line to it is that they are building personal connections with their customers.
1: Yes. And they have deep insights into what their interests are. And they understand inherently that they can't interrupt what they're interested in. They have to be what they're interested in. There were uh, just a couple other things and I think all of these <laughs> may have been from one of Rekha's uh, chapters so don't, <laughs> don't, don't get upset. Thank
0: you, Douglas. You're very kind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but uh, there's one part where it said your relationship with your customers starts with your curiosity mm-hmm. about them.
0: Yeah. And
1: curiosity is something I think in short supply and I, it just seems I'd never seen it phrased that way and just the idea of you know, observing or like an ethnographic researcher, observing uh whatever they're studying, observing your customers just be curious about them, look for the friction in their life, and then yet there was another one where she was talking about uh, this field of narrative medicine, yeah, and I just it just jumped off the page where she talked about this type of medicine where the the patient wants to be heard and believed and taken seriously and feel safe. Does that sound like your customers too so she said, it's about practicing how to coax the truth from others and see beyond the surface.
0: I could never write
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true of sales. Were, it's so true of marketing. Say
0: that, you were going to say that quote. It's like, I didn't write that. It's not in my book. Well, it's, wait a minute. <laughs> it's about
1: practicing how to coax the truth from others and see beyond the surface. And you'll notice it's not about talking about your product. And no. I've given this talk exactly a few times right. called – Manufacturers called. Stop talking about your product first. And David Merriman Scott plays a rather substantial role in that. And because you have this quote, which you will probably have end up having to say till your your final days, no one cares about your product except
0: you nobody cares about your product except for you and I was really really thrilled with this particular chapter that Rega wrote where this these ideas came through it was it's so 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 interesting um, the title of the chapter is listen to rehumanize um, and she just approached it in a really different way than I would have because I've been talking about these ideas for a long time but I kind of scratched the surface she dug in deep she did a, a neuroscience degree at columbia university as an undergraduate and while at uh, columbia um, they developed a program called narrative medicine it was a new new idea new concept new program which they started to teach and reiko was among the first people to go through that program and this the simple simple definition of this concept is that with narrative medicine, you learn the story of the patient. You learn about their life. You learn the narrative of their life, not just the symptoms of their disease. Their story. Yeah, their story, not just the symptoms of their disease. And people who are good at narrative medicine actually come from a literature and storytelling and filmmaking background. And so, and that fits Rako perfectly because she loves to write. She's a great writer um, and she loves telling stories. And so she just really dug into this concept of narrative medicine. And so simply... It's not just the symptoms of a disease. And she tells the story of Jeremy. Jeremy is a pseudonym for a patient that she worked with who is suffering from a blood cancer disease. And Jeremy and Reiko were talking for about an hour about the disease that he has and his treatment options. And, you know, she was just an undergraduate. She's not a doctor, but, you know, she was just really enjoying speaking with this gentleman. And finally, they got around to the things that he loves, the things that he's done in his life. And it turns out he was an amateur artist. And he said to her, you know, I want to continue to live because I want to practice my art. I don't want to continue to live just for the sake of living another several months or several years. Mm. Can you please make sure that my treatment focuses on allowing me to do my art for as long as possible? And Reiko said, oh, my God, it was like this, not just a light bulb, but a spotlight went off. (laughs) Because I, I suddenly understood this concept of me- narrative medicine so well just by speaking with Jeremy and then i realized that there's so few organizations of any type let you know doctors or anybody who really gets at the details of the story of the customer and what that relates to regarding the, how the product and services are sold and and how the company deals with customers and so she um became so interested in narrative medicine that she actually taught a course on narrative medicine at Boston University, where she goes now. And she kind of created that within the book and calls it narrative professionalism, the idea of understanding the stories of your customers. Now, in some cases, you can understand individual stories, you know, what is this exact customer thinking and feeling. In other cases, um, with certain types of organizations, that's not possible, but you can still understand the nature of the types of customers that you're working with. And in particular, thinking about things like, is is this person from a different background than me? And what does that mean? is uh, this person have different uh, feelings based on the country that they grew up in or the background that they have? And, you know, having written the book with a mixed race um, millennial woman and me being a 50-something white guy, um, it really... Comes home that there are big differences. Despite me alone saying that there are differences, having my co author be someone who is quite different um, really brought those ideas home and made it in, in a, in a really important addition to the book. So that gets at humanity in a very different way and a very positive way, and the organizations that can do that effectively build. An immense fan base.
1: Amen, and it just brings to mind what I think is the most powerful word in marketing and sales, which is empathy.
0: Absolutely, and you know that if ever break that chapter down into one word, that would be the word.
1: Yes, yes, but then we wouldn't have been able to <laughs> take all those other things that she wrote and, <laughs> and talk about them. So. David, in my office building here in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, down on the ground floor, there's a running store called Running, etc., and they sell running shoes. Great folks down there, and uh, at least once a week, when I'm coming out of the office, I see a large group of people that are about to go on a big run.
0: Nice, yeah.
1: So I want to ask you to talk about how building relationships with customers with your fan or building fans is especially valuable for traditional businesses facing growing competition uh, from uh, digital products and services, like buying online.
0: Oh, absolutely. And what, what strikes me about that kind of fandom is that a running store like that is using a technique that we write about in the book that I find to be so fascinating because it comes directly from neuroscience. And that's the concept of physical proximity. And so we spoke with several different neuroscientists about what happens in our brain, what happens literally in our brain when we get close to people. And it turns out that the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the human connections are. And it also turns out that um, this is coming from our ancient brain, our DNA around um, survival Because we want to be close to the people we trust and we want to be wary of the people that pose danger in case we need to uh, execute a fight-or-flight mechanism. Uh, and so there are several zones of proximity that were defined by neuroscientists, including Edward T. Hall, who first started talking about this. There's the public zone, which is further than about 20 feet away. And those are people that you're aware of when you see them, but you don't pay too much attention. Once they get within about 20 20 feet, they enter your social space, social zone. And we we humans all begin to track people when they get that close. That's like when you walk into a room, you, you, you can't help it, but your brain immediately scans. Um, sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. You're looking for friends. You're looking for danger. And then the personal zone is four feet to, to 20 feet, roughly. Um, that sort of within, uh, sorry, the personal zone was within four feet. So four feet or closer personal zone is cocktail party distance. When you're sharing a cocktail with somebody, you're close to them. As those zones get closer, the more powerful that human connection becomes. It also means that when someone's in your personal space that you don't trust or don't know, like in a crowded elevator, you feel wary. This is neuroscientists. This is hardwired into us as humans. And so what that means is your running store is doing something incredibly powerful. What they're doing is they're putting their customers in close physical proximity with other customers and presumably as well with employees of the store. And that what that does is it creates an incredibly powerful human connection that is that it's hardwired into our brains, um, neuroscientists say. And so people then, yeah, they go on a run and they have fun, but they're doing it with like-minded people mm-hmm. and they're doing it with the employees of that store. And that is crazy so powerful to build fans so what that means is those people could buy their running shoes somewhere else they could probably buy their running shoes even cheaper if they go to amazon but they have such a powerful emotional hardwired dna neuroscience based connection to those other runners they run with and they meet at that store as well as the employees who help set that up, that they're more likely than not to want to continue to buy all their running gear at that store. And that idea of close physical proximity is exactly what HubSpot is doing with their annual inbound conference. They're bringing, bringing 25,000 people together, like-minded people who are in close physical proximity with one another. So it's an incredibly powerful way to build fans, and we learned um, about this and wrote about about this from the perspective of neuroscience,
1: it was fascinating. And of course, I saw how now I look at all these things differently. I see, ah, oh, now I see what they're, I see what they're doing. That's like the the running store downstairs. I, I saw exactly what they're doing, and I've, I'm a customer, and I've gone in and, and I just even just the few times I've been in there, you know, they're doing things for me. They're checking my feet. They're they're having me, you know, they're scanning things, whatever they do to make sure I'm buying the right shoe and so and and they're very friendly and they're it's like it's a more of a movement it's all about right. health and running and right. they're inspiring
0: right. people to to be their best so and which and just one more thought that's interesting about that to me fascinating to me about that uh to me is that most organizations probably like that running store doing this naturally yeah however we identified and wrote about in Fanocracy that if you know these ideas and you can implement them, and it has to be in a very natural way. It has to be in a very authentic way. You can't say, no, I'm going to get into your proximity and <laughs> therefore you will become my fan. You know, That's not going to work. But once you know these You know several different steps uh, to creating fans. Like you said, it's like all of a sudden you're conscious of what they're doing. But I would bet that that running store isn't conscious of it. I bet they just naturally do it.
1: Yes, but also, even though I'm conscious of it, I still like it. I like I like getting together with other people like that who have a similar interest. All the things that you explained. So it's sort of like you you showed me how the magic trick works, and I still don't care. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right. Right, right, right.
1: So just a couple of the things. Chapter 6 is is titled Give More Than You Have To, and there's several chapters about how to walk you through building a a fanocracy. But David Meerman-Scott, I would now like to talk to you about religion.
0: (laughs) I'm not talking
1: about creationism versus evolution.
0: I know know what religion is coming up. Yeah,
1: I'm talking about something even more hotly contested by marketers, and that has to do with ungating your content versus gating your content. Please explain for us this religious divide in the marketing community.
0: A religious debate. So, the idea is that we have many people, many particularly B2B companies, who push their online content out with the requirement that to get the content you have to fill out a form and give your email address and often other contact and other information as well personal information as well typically that takes the form of here is my white paper but i'm not going to give it to you until you give me an email address first the problem is that sets up an adversarial relationship the problem is that by demanding an email address before you give a white paper you are not building fans you are building an adversarial relationship with existing and potential customers so the religious deb- Debate here is on one hand, you can give something absolutely free with precisely no expectation of anything in return. And that's much more likely to build fans. And that's much more likely to grow the number of people who are exposed to your ideas. That's one part of the religious argument. The other side of the religious argument is, well, yeah, but if I demand an email address, then I'm going to create a list of people I can contact, my salespeople can reach out, we can put them on a list, and we can start to sell to them. Both of those are true, Both of them are valid ways to go about doing business. Both of them are ways that have created success for organizations. But if you want to build fans and you want to spread your ideas and you want to grow over the long term and you want to have people talk about you, I would suggest the right side of the religious argument is that you need to create free content without without any expectation of anything in return. Now, I first learned about that from the Grateful Dead because they were the first band uh, and now one of the few bands that allows fans to record their concerts. You can actually bring your recording gear into Grateful Dead concerts. Every other band on the ticket, it says no recording devices allowed. The Grateful Dead says, sure, why not? Feel free. And they grew to be one of the most popular touring bands in history as a result of that, by giving away their content with no expectation of anything in return. And so we identified a, num- a number of other surprising organizations that have done exactly the same thing. And it is a religious debate. It is not. There is no right nor wrong answer. But the choice of which direction is to it is going to decide what kind of company you are are you a company that's transactional that just wants to make the next sale and make your quarterly numbers or are you a company that wants to grow fans and continue to grow over the long term
1: yes and there's (laughs) actually he says (laughs) there i i don't want to get involved in in i know
0: i know i was feeling i was feeling like you were going to decide which side of the debate but you just said well
1: But you did it because in the book, you said there's actually a hybrid approach you can take. There is
0: a hybrid approach. but hybrid, And let me I'll explain briefly the hybrid approach. The hybrid approach is make initial content. So if you're a sales geek, the top of the funnel, initial content, absolutely, totally free. And then within that initial content, have an opportunity for people to put their hand up and register and give an email address or a phone number or something. So the way that might look is your white paper and your ebook are completely free, and then within the white paper and ebook is an invitation to join an email newsletter or, or to attend a webinar or something like that.
1: Right. And if listeners would Google HubSpot pillar page, they'll get a lot more about this because all these planets are aligning when. You put a lot of that content on your website. First off, it's actually better for search engine optimization rather than hiding it behind okay. a, a, a landing page. But also, the the notion now is that you it's like you've got a bookstore and you let people come in, they look at the book, they get a pretty good sense for what they're going to get, then they buy it before they leave. The same sort of thing, like we've got a, a pillar page about lead generation for manufacturers and people can read the whole thing, but a, a lot of people are choosing to click on it and download a PDF version of it and and they're giving us their email address. So we've already uh, you know built the trust and they can see yes, I don't think it's going to be a downside. I don't think I'm going to get bothered by doing that. So it's there's several things coming together here and I th- I can't seem to find it, but in the book I think you mentioned how the number of people that don't want to give an email address is getting quite high now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's tons and tons and tons of people who just won't fill out forms. Yeah. And when they see a form, they just immediately hit the back button. They're gone. They don't want to they don't want to risk getting on an email spam list. They don't want to risk having a salesperson dog them forever. Some other data that we learned is that the number of people who will uh, download an ebook when there's no registration can be as high as 50 to one, to the ones that wa- that will um, only do it do it with a filling out of form. So, in other words, you make your white paper available and you demand an email address. Maybe you'll get 2,000 people who download it in a year, which is great. You get 2000 emails, congratulations, everybody clap. But had you made it completely free with no registration, we've seen numbers as high as 50 times that. So you would have 100,000 people exposed to your ideas. Um, So you just have to decide what you prefer, and when those 100,000 people are exposed to your ideas, some of them might then just want to engage with you, but they're not cold leads like an email address lead is. They're warm leads because they've already read your paper and they want to learn more.
1: Right, and that's where, truth be told, I'm more a fan of just getting it out there, and I can't get the Grateful Dead out of my head when I think about that (laughs) because that's what they wanted. They wanted their music to get out there. They right. wanted they wanted it shared, and you could see how at the time, know, forty years ago, that was just so counterintuitive. Starting
0: forty years ago, oh yeah, totally and it counter- must have
1: driven their record company nuts.
0: It did, and it drove them crazy. And and but then at the same time, so then people would say, "Great, we want a, more music. We want to go see a show." You know, like people like me buying seventy-five tickets over the years to <laughs> right. see
1: shows. Right. So when you're interviewing David Mirman Scott you are required by podcast law to ask hmm. about gobbledygook. And uh, pod, I, was, I was so happy to see <laughs> that word and that concept uh, in the book. And gobbledygook, which you can explain, I think most people know what it is, but gobbledygook is to building a fanocracy as kryptonite is to superman explain Ooh,
0: but but that's not my quote that's your quote
1: yeah that's that's correct
0: yes it's a it, great quote so gobbledygook is the org, is when companies say things like we are the flexible scalable solution for improving business process shooting using cutting-edge technology gobbledygook are those buzzwords and blather and baloney that people are just slinging out there that are so overused to have become meaningless and the problem with doing that is it's kind of the exact opposite of what we were speaking about earlier around the idea of genuine human connection and understanding people and the ideas of narrative medicine what is this person's story because nobody talks like that (laughs) you know except for companies no one talks like that so eliminating gobbledygook is actually one way that you can pretty easily just go through your website and your marketing materials and eliminate all those buzzwords can actually help to grow fans. So
1: one of the parts in the book is where you talk about how in this big digital world, the need for human connection is even uh, more acute. And that's why people, I would think companies who are saying, well, we're a digital product. Yes, but that's true. But you could start with your copy on your website and just try to sound more like a human.
0: Yeah, exactly. As well as the images on your website and not use inane stock photos, but (laughs) real images of real people. And, you know, Reiko uh, and I did a video um, recently where we talked about um, true diversity as opposed to kind of fake diversity, just for the sake of saying that you're diverse, you know, the latter being a photograph, typically a stock photo that has, you know, one token African-American and, you know, one token uh, somebody um, who looks Asian or, you know, whatever and, or whatever the equivalent is in whatever country you happen to be in. And so that is, you know, patronizing, True diversity is, is actually the sorts of people who are part of your community or a part of the group of people who enjoy your products and services. And, and I just love having learned about that from Reiko, who, as I mentioned earlier, my wife is Japanese, so Reiko's half Japanese. And interestingly, half, uh, we call them Havis. Um, People of mixed race or HAVIs or HAPAs, sometimes people call mixed race um, individuals, are very misunderstood. You know, people say Barack Obama is black. He's not. He's half black. And so there's a whole cadre of mixed race people out there, especially younger people. My daughter's 26, She, her age and younger, who are very misunderstood when it comes to the way that companies deal with them because, you know, they may put up what they think is diversity, but they don't really, they're not really diverse with race and sexual orientation and other forms of diversity.
1: Mm. So let's move on. I want to ask about truth or consequences. Hmm. Uh, So this is just so uh, big an issue for so many companies, but explain how, I know this sounds obvious, but explain how not telling the truth is a disaster for companies trying to build a fanocracy. And if you could talk about the tale of two restaurant chains, IHOP and KFC. <laughs> the I <think>
0: tale <laughs> of the two restaurant chains. Yes. So, yeah, so we titled that chapter, Tell the Truth, Especially When It Hurts. Um, by the way, that chapter title took like months to come up with. <laughs> um, it got my attention. Backstory. Back uh, so there's so many organizations that want to... F- lay blame on somebody else Um, they lie and they cheat and they do something, and then they get caught out on it and they want to blame somebody else on it. You know, companies like Wells Fargo come to mind. You know, they had a corporate culture of cheating people by setting up bank accounts they didn't choose to uh, to sign up for. Millions of bank accounts. And then when they get caught for it, they blame each other. You know, different, oh, this person, the company is fault or that person's fault. Well, no, it was your corporate culture. And the C- CEO on down should have known about it. And don't lie, number one, and then don't try to cover it up, number two. Too. We learned that it takes a long time to build a fanocracy. You know, building a fan base and having a group of fans who love what you do takes a long time. This is not a short term strategy. This is not something you're going to accomplish in one quarter. But if you're diligent over some number of years and you do the things that we outline in fanocracy and you are dealing with people on a personal basis, over time, you develop fans and they become your greatest asset because they're willing to share what you're doing. They're willing to buy your products again and again. And they're willing to let you slide if you make a mistake and you own up to it. But as soon as you lie to them, you've lost them. Mm -hmm. And so, it's really difficult to build a fan base, but really, really easy to lose a fan base. Um, So, we looked at um, a couple of examples of restaurants and International House of Pancakes, IHOP, um, last year, like they just randomly changed their name theoretically to IHOP I-H-O-B instead of I-H-O-P, and they put out on social media that such and such a date and time we're going to change our name to IHOB, they created a new Twitter account, which was IHOB. Um, They even had a photograph that they published of a crane removing an IHOP sign and putting an IHOB sign onto a restaurant. So they were all in on this deception, and so much so that people like Re- fans of IHOP were just really upset about what they were doing. It was almost like a reprise of New Coke in the 80s. It was, and a lot of people said that actually, new people compared it to New Coke. It was terrible, and it was I think it was awful for their brand. And then they didn't own up to the fact that they screwed up by doing it. Um, they just said, oh yeah yeah we're just kidding oh, ha, ha. meanwhile kfc in the uk literally ran out of chicken <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine a chicken restaurant with no chicken
1: i don't think that was intentional that, that, that wasn't some gimmick
0: no it was not a gimmick it was a problem because they what what actually happened is they're They changed distribution companies, and the second distribution company um, ended up screwing up. And what they could have done is said, our distribution company screwed up. It's not our fault. We'll fix it as soon as we can. They didn't. They owned the problem because they were the ones that chose to change the distribution company. And they did a tongue-in-cheek way. You know, oh, my gosh, a chicken company that has no chicken. We're going to help you out. You know, do it, we're going as quickly as we can. They created a new website um, and app where people could um, figure out which restaurants had chicken and which ones didn't. Um, they offered coupons for people once they got the chicken back to get the first f- meal for free. All sorts of really cool stuff. They um, spoke with the media. They owned the problem. Mm-hmm. And they kept their fans and even grew their fans as a result.
1: Yeah, so then what happens when either of those restaurant chains has an outbreak of some sort of E. coli? Right. Who are you going to believe?
0: Right. Exactly. So, exactly. So, if people get sick, hopefully not, but if it were to happen at IHOP, they're the liars. You know, and then what are they going to try to do? Cover it up. And if they do tell the truth, will people believe them? And meanwhile, KFC has built all this goodwill. And if something happens, their fans are more likely to be with them should there be a problem like that.
1: Yes. David, just last question about the book. And it's about employees and building a fanocracy. I just, I don't know how you can do it without the right kind of people working for you in the first place. And can you talk about the importance of finding employees with a passion, not necessarily for your products or service, but just a passion for something, anything. I thought that was so interesting.
0: It is interesting. And it was very surprising to us. And we spoke with a bunch of CEOs about how they build a company that people become fans of. And they they answered it in slightly different ways, but essentially saying the same thing. And that is we hire for passion. We want people who are extremely passionate about their person the things that they love because they're much more likely to be um, passionate about what we do. And so for example, one CEO, Pete alone um, he runs a company called Instavisor. And Pete is an Olympic athlete, an Olympic gold medalist. And so and he's the CEO of the company. And he says that I hire Uh, Other elite athletes, other Olympians, so either former Olympians like himself or people who are currently training to be in the Olympics – and people who are world champions in their sport. And he said, the reason I hire those people is because they have shown that they're passionate enough about the sport that they love that they can take it to the highest elite levels. They're also much more likely to be able to take my company to those high elite levels. We had another person that we spoke with who told us that the question that she asks people in an interview, that's the most important question, you know, after they've gone through the whole, you know, what have you done? What's on your resume? Where'd you go to school thing is if you are in a room with a thousand people, what would be the one thing that you have a high degree of confidence you are the best at of all of those thousands of people, thousand people? Mm. And the answer to that is eye-opening to her and helps her to decide whether that person is passionate. Because if they immediately say, oh, I'm the best at this, um, whatever it might be, then that person has something they're passionate about and they, they like to celebrate that passion. They're happy to share that passion. And those are the people she hires,
1: Interesting, and that's why in the book, in that chapter, you say passion can become a habit. Just find something they're passionate about, and you're going to be uh, more successful. Exactly right. Interesting. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: You know, as we looked at all of these companies that have developed fans and we looked at all of these people who are fans of something, what we recognized is fandom is not just for actors and musicians and authors and sports stars anymore. I'm convinced that any company, person, or organization can develop fans. And it doesn't matter if it's a consumer brand, a B2B, a nonprofit, or even a commodity business. Anybody can build fans.
1: And there's lots of examples in the book that we didn't get to, but that was one of my favorite parts where you were showing how companies that sell commodities can build a fanocracy.
0: Absolutely. We actually talked about Duracell, my favorite example. There is no more commodity in the on the planet practically than batteries. You know, a battery is a battery is a battery, but Duracell has built millions of fans.
1: And that's by giving batteries away after hurricanes and natural disasters
0: natural disasters yeah exactly right
1: did they reinvest like a lot of the money they might have been spending on advertising to just figuring out how to get their product to people uh in the most need
0: i'm not sure where they budgeted it from but the program is called power forward and they have a, a fleet of nearly 10 vehicles that deploy to natural disasters and when they for example when they went to Hurricane Maria, the U.S. Air Force airlifted their trucks down to Puerto Rico and they gave away ton- literally tons and tons of batteries, something like 700,000 free batteries to people. At a time when batteries are in the most demand during a natural disaster, rather than try to sell them, they gave them away for free, and then that builds incredible numbers of fans.
1: Yes. So, wh- what is one thing a listener could do today today? To put into action any of the uh, many ideas from your book?
0: What anybody can do right now this moment is recognize that passion is infectious. And so living a passionate life is something we can all do. And living a passionate life rubs off on other people. If you live a passionate life, you, you attract yourself to other like-minded people, and people just naturally want to be around you. And it helps to grow your business because people naturally are attracted to other passionate people in business as well. Are there any recent or upcoming books that
1: you recommend or are looking forward to reading?
0: A book that I was asked to write an endorsement to that has just come out so I read an early copy. It's out now, though, it is John Jance's The Self-Reliant Entrepreneur. Have you read that one yet? No, but
1: I'm going to interview him in uh – Couple of weeks, and actually, his episode will have aired uh, by the time your this this interview airs.
0: Oh, that's awesome! So, I, John's a John's a friend, and I'm a fan, and I've read other books that he's written, and he and I like to connect at conferences. And this is a different. I, I won't I won't give away anything oh. um, for reader for for listeners who haven't heard that episode. But this is a departure for John. Um, it's um, some words of wisdom to live by for entrepreneurs, and I'm I'm really happy that John wrote the book because I really liked it.
1: That's terrific. And actually, John will have become a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Four-Timers Club. Oh! Which, so he's going to beat you to that by just a, a few weeks, but uh, you guys are, are good friends. so That's
0: motivation to write another book.
1: Oh, well, I'm happy to, <laughs> happy to offer you some goals there. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to your sites like uh, com, fanocracy.com, which has great resources. And we're also going to include a link to your uh, LinkedIn profile so that listeners can reach out to you and hopefully thank you. I know the authors love hearing from the the marketing book podcast listeners. And I'm also going to include a link to your new marketing mastery course that you, I, I guess that's part of the, with Tony Robbins.
0: Yeah, I built it with Tony Robbins and it helps to align an organization's marketing with the ways that people buy.
1: Well, and also it was my sense that you've spoken in, I don't know how many 50 countries <laughs> you're around the world giving these keynotes but you can't help everybody but this is a way to sort of go to the next step
0: exactly right, right. yeah exactly right exactly right it's um it's a series of 65 videos um, 25 infographics there's a comprehensive 70 page workbook and I dug in deep to make it easy for busy people to learn all of the ideas that I've built over my career. And there's even um, a bonus lesson in there about fanocracy.
1: Oh, terrific. And for you Marketing Book Podcast listeners, David has generously offered a discount to you. So you go to marketingbookpodcast.com, you click on that call to action we're going to have there, you'll be all set. So- and there's a
0: $500 discount, which is um, which is pretty awesome. And yes. I, pre- I appreciate you um, helping me out with that, Douglas. Well, my pleasure and uh, whatever I can do to help spread
1: the word because you can see the effect that your book and work has had just on this one knuckle-headed podcaster. <laughs> knuckle-headed. So. If for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and customers into fans. The authors are David Merriman Scott and Rako Scott. David, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: It's my pleasure, Douglas. I really appreciate you having me on again.
1: And that closes the book on episode 261 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burden. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to the special offer at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome back Joe Polizzi to the Marketing Book Podcast for the fourth time to talk about his new book, The Will to Die. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison.